0: National Review Institute is cruising to Alaska. Join NR writers and other thought leaders for a special vacation from June 16 to June 23 aboard Holland America's Nordam. If you're feeling especially adventurous, you can participate in an optional land tour before the cruise from June 12 to June 15. Enjoy fine dining, entertainment, and world-class accommodations as you rub elbows with NR personalities and other special guests during panel discussions, breakout sessions, exclusive 1955 Society events, and more. Make it a family trip! This year we've added youth programming for your children and grandchildren. Destinations include Glacier Bay, Skagway, and Juneau. To register, visit nricruise.com. That's nricruise.com. <laughs> Welcome to episode 22 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. This one released on a Thursday, as my contract stipulated that it must be. I'm back from Universal Studios, where we went for the weekend for my eldest son's birthday. And it was absolutely terrific. We stayed on site in one of their hotels, which I haven't done before. And that was good. But the biggest change since I was there 14 years ago, other than the two small people who kept following me around and calling me daddy, was that both of the parks now have Harry Potter sections. In Islands of Adventure, that's one of the parks, they have Hogwarts and Hogsmeade. And in Universal Studios, they have Diagon Alley. And goodness me, are they superb. On the way home, after we'd left, we chatted about what we'd liked the most. And my answer was all the Harry Potter stuff. The train that runs between the two parks is fabulous. The Escape from Gringotts roller coaster is brilliant. And the theming on that is as good as anything Disney's ever done. The Harry Potter and the Forbidden Journey ride is stellar. It's soaring meets haunted mansion meets pteranodon flyers. And then there's Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure roller coaster, which frankly was a revelation. At the risk of sounding saccharine, I had a real moment when I was in the line with my seven-year-old waiting for Hagrid's magical creature's motorbike adventure. He looks like me, my son, that is, not Hagrid. And in the coat that he was wearing, he especially looked like me when I was his age. And I looked down at him, and in that instant... I saw the world through my dad's eyes. I was my dad, and my seven-year-old was me. And it was 30 years ago when my dad used to get up early to get into the line for the most popular roller coasters that I wanted to ride. And I saw the cycle playing out, and I realized how small we all are. It was a really beautiful thing. So I'm going to do something a little bit different on today's show. I was going to do a long Q&A and answer all the questions that I've compiled from listeners about being an immigrant and about the differences between the UK and the US and about what it's like to move country and so on. But then I thought, why not get some help doing that? So I did. I asked Sam Negus, who's a friend of mine from Hillsdale College and a fellow America-phile British-born immigrant to the United States, to talk about that whole area. And we ended up doing that for the whole show. Once we'd started, we couldn't stop. So here it is, episode 22 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, in which the streets are made of Cheese. Sam Negus, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. Howdy, howdy. All right. Well, what we're going to do today is talk about being immigrants and immigrants from the same place, or at least roughly the same place, not exactly the same place in England. But if you zoom out from the map, it all sort of looks the same. England is a very small country.
1: In, a, in the American mind, we we grew up on the same cul-de-sac with, you know, mail being delivered by postman Pat and walk down the street to have tea with the Queen, right? My wife joked with me this morning when I told her I was recording with you this afternoon and said, Oh, are oh, you gonna ask Charlie about how everyone in America thinks the two of you sound exactly the same when you you know you you totally don't? So probably people listening are already thinking, what you do?
0: You know what's funny about that is that the English who haven't spent much time in America make the mistake the other way around, and that because England is quite small. They assume America must be. When I was at university, a friend of mine got a law internship, apprenticeship, something, in Southern California. And I said to him that I was going to be spending the summer in Washington, D.C. And he said, oh, maybe we could get lunch. Yeah. So it's not just that Americans think that England is small, which it is. It's the other way around, too.
1: Yeah, totally. L- last year, my eldest sister, maybe it was the year before, was was planning. She'd been saying, look, we, we we need to come and see you. It's been too long. We think about maybe taking a family trip to America to come and see you. And then she, then she messaged me and said, you know, we've decided to go and spend a couple of weeks over Christmas and New Year up, up in New York City. Maybe you could just come up and see us. You know, I'm, I'm living in Asheville, Asheville, North Carolina at the time my my other sister the year before had done had done the same thing someone had had lent her the use of um you know a condo in Delray Beach Florida and she's emailed me and said, hey, we're going to Miami. Why don't you come down and see us? And I look it up, Delray Beach. And I'm like, okay, first of all, you're not going to Miami. You're going to a place 50 miles north of Miami. Second of all, that's still about 500 miles south of where I live. But sure, I'll come and see you because, you know, you're here and I want to. But yeah, no, that, that is exactly, exactly how people think.
0: So you were going to ask me a question.
1: Yeah, well, no, so I think we'd kind of exchanged some emails and and, and and said we we would talk broadly about immigration, or more specifically, being an immigrant. And I always think of myself as an immigrant. I never use the word expat. I never think of myself as an expat. I think of myself as an immigrant, and I, and I, I suspect you probably do too, for the same sort of reasons. And there's something about being an immigrant that's kind of tied into American history and identity and there's a sort of pride in that. I, I take pride in being, um, you know, an Anglo-American immigrant. I guess I wanted to ask you, do you... I, I bet no one would have ever, ever said this, but do you feel like people have a hard time sort of conceptualizing you as an immigrant, you know, because your work in the chattering classes, as we would call it back in Britain, white male, etc. cetera? Is that... What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I think people have trouble conceptualizing it on both sides of the Atlantic. So I agree with you entirely. I consider myself an immigrant, and I am an American. And that has something to do with America and its history and its mythology and its nature as an idea as much as a nation but it also has something to do with my wanting to be an American and wanting to be an immigrant. I have friends here in Florida from England, some of whom have naturalized, who still feel a little bit on the outside of things. They still see themselves as British who became American And I don't think I really do. That is true of me. Right. But I don't think of myself like that. If you think about how expats from Britain in Spain identify, they'd say they were British. They would never say I'm Spanish, even if they've lived there for 15 years. And I raise that example because I think there are a million Brits living in Spain. They don't consider themselves Spanish. They never will. They are British living in Spain. I am an American now, but even when I wasn't, I didn't really see myself as a Brit living in America. I thought I had moved. (laughs) I'd become of the place. So I agree with that. In terms of the conceptualization, yeah, I think you get it from both sides because outside of my family, which really does understand this, my friends still sort of see me as being off in some... Far flung colonial outpost and probably liable to return at any point. And Americans don't think of me on average as an immigrant in quite the same way as they would the guy from Guatemala or from Japan. But I do. And I was surprised when I moved here about that. I didn't exactly expect to be treated as a minority because I don't think in those terms i think our focus on immutable characteristics is bizarre and gross but i did wonder whether i would be seen as different and i think you're right i think if you're from england you speak the language people almost think of you as a different sort of american what's your view
1: yeah, I mean I, I the, the language has to be a big part of it. Like you were talking about Britons in Spain, you know, have been living on the you know, Costa del Sol for fifteen years or whatever, but surely almost all of them can speak Spanish. So I suppose one could live in Spain for fifteen years as a British migrant expat and not learn Spanish. But I mean, surely the overwhelming majority of them are completely fluent in Spanish. Obviously the the, the transition as a Briton to to move to America is nowhere near that scale, right? It's my my sister in law is is from Shendu in China, and she's very highly acculturated at this point to American life. But the transition that she had to make was vast compared to to mine. You know, right. to make Ossa like a wart, as as Hamlet said. So the language is is part of it. But like you said, I, I don't think that Britons in Spain who are fluent in Spanish would start thinking of themselves as, as Spanish, precisely because the, the Spanish themselves would kind of think of that as being a little bit weird. It's just not really a concept. And that as you say, that, that's kind of deeply ingrained in American identity. And there's there's this there's this quote that I read somewhere years ago. And I've 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 searched a few times to try to figure out where it was from, because I just I just heard it and it stuck in my mind. And I've absolutely no idea where I heard it or who who wrote it. So I suppose I could claim it myself, but I'm not going to. But 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 some someone uh, wrote that it takes ten thousand years to make a Frenchman, but you can make an American in five minutes. I think that may have been from a French writer, and even meant derisively. But of course, Americans, for the most part, I think wouldn't think of that concept as being. You know, I had I had, a, I had a, a sort of microcosmic experience of this experience within the experience, if you. If, if you get what I mean, when I lived in Texas, and Texans are very proud of their identity as a Texan. But something that I found fascinating about being in Texas for six years was that Texans were also very quick to welcome other people to being adopted Texans themselves, you know, the old famous bumper sticker, I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as soon as I could. And I, I found that rather fascinating that even the most culturally Texan people you could imagine, and I was in a pretty Texan place, you know, I, I was going to this old Episcopal church in downtown Fort Worth with people whose names were on public buildings around the church, you know, very kind of old money, real generational Fort Worthians. And if you and I, you know, I, like I, I bought myself a pair of cowboy boots and a couple of cowboy hats, and I dressed the part whenever we had church events or whatever. And nobody ever came up to me and was like, "Why are you poncing around in that Stetson when you're everybody knows you're an Englishman?" It was like, if you love Texas and you want to be a Texan, you're a Texan. Yeehaw, kind of thing. So you know, I, I, I think that that's just deeply ingrained in the American mind.
0: The equivalent for me is a Florida man. Yes. People want me to become a Florida man. I've noticed this. This is an identity that they embrace on my behalf. It's not just that they want me to be American. It's that they want me to be Florida. One thing I did notice, though, and it's hard to quantify this, but I swear that this is true, is that for the first six months to a year of my being in the United States, people would ask me where I was visiting from. Not always, but in the majority of cases, why are you here? Asked in a kind way, not why are you here? Where are you visiting from? Where's home? Right. And after a year, it was when did you move here or where do you live? And I, I can't quite justify this logically, but I think it's the affect that you inadvertently pick up as if by osmosis from spending time in the culture. Maybe it's the way you dress or move or engage or maybe you wear a T-shirt that says New York Yankees on it or you have an American credit card, or whatever it is people just started treating me as if I was obviously a permanent resident of the United States, even though my accent very clearly marks me out as being foreign, and still does. I haven't lost my accent. And a few years ago, I had this thesis confirmed, albeit anecdotally, when I was sitting in an airplane. And I looked up, and I saw a guy get on, and I instantly thought he's English. Just the way he got on the plane, the way he was walking, his bag. And sure enough, when he came past me, he was talking to his friend. He had an English accent.
1: I've had the same experience,
0: yeah. I mean, this is still only anecdotal evidence,
1: but I, you can increase it by 100%. The exact same thing. I, People very, very seldom ask me where I'm from or take interest in the fact that I'm Clearly some kind of imperial i mean they ask me they ask me if i 'm Australian if they ask at least half the time if they bother asking they ask if i 'm Australian, which doesn 't bother me at all, but people have probably within two years of being here they they stopped asking very often and i i 've had the same thing where i 'll see someone. You know, a guy walking. I don't want to start ragging on our home country just yet. We we, we might get to that in a bit, uh, and I don't want to be that kind of immigrant because I'm not. You know, home is always home. I love England, even if uh, to some extent I'm loving the England of the mind rather than whatever's left of the real thing. But home home is always home. There's a kind of. Preemptive apologeticness about the way that English people move, as though they're already apologising yes. for having bumped into you. As, yes. as oh, sorry, oh, I'm so sorry. As just walking, as though they're they're apologetic for taking up the space they were born into. And yeah, you you see them coming. And yeah, I, I you know I remember when I when I first moved to Texas for grad school. I had been in Atlanta for a couple of years. I had some some friends there who were kind of real locals. And I remember one of them, one of them ribbing me when, uh, when I told them I was moving to Texas and they said, Oh, you know, I can, I can see you're already walking a little taller. You're already standing up a little straighter. Look at you, that, that Texas air has gotten your lungs already. Uh, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the sense of freedom and pride. I think there is something to that, 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 that there's just a different way that Americans carry themselves. And broadly speaking, obviously, but you know, you, you, you truly become acculturated and just sort of act like you know what you're doing
0: so this is i think going to take us on to one of the things that we wanted to talk about which is why there are some british people who instinctively love america and why there are others who don't but the most disconcerting experience that i have as an immigrant and this happens relatively often at least two or three times a year is that I meet a fellow Brit who is visiting the United States and they presume that I can be co-opted into their criticisms of the country. Yes. Purely by my accent. They assume that I too find the things that they find strange or undesirable about the United States strange and undesirable. And then they're perplexed when I say, actually, no, Right. You know, sometimes this comes up in the context of the Second Amendment, and I will accept that I am, for an English person, even for an English immigrant, I am out there on that. But often it comes up in the context of you know, healthcare or taxes or... People talking loudly, or Disney World existing, you know, or churches everywhere. And I, think, I think, well, you know, I, I don't think this is weird at all.
1: Do, do you get that one? Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Strangers, but, you know, my, my family as well. You know, I, I think one of the things is Britons feel much more familiar with American life than they actually are. One of the ways this manifested itself to me was when I first moved here, and this happens very seldom now because I've been here for so long, but when I was first in the US, people would say things, use idioms, that I would click in my mind and I would suddenly realize, oh, that's what that means. Because I'd been watching American television and movies my whole life and I'd heard these phrases like right off the bat. And then the first time you go to a baseball game and, and see a batter hit the ball right through the sweet spot of the middle of the bat, and everybody stands up immediately because they know it's just gone, right? It's out the park right off the bat. Well, if you didn't grow up on baseball, you actually don't know what right off the bat means. Um, and, and just a hundred things like that, the first year or two I was in the States, people would say things up like, oh you know that's what and I, I, that was one of the ways that i realized okay yeah not as much as being a, a an immigrant from the interior provinces of china like my sister-in-law but this wasn't completely home this this was a foreign country in quite a number of ways and the bbc or any any news outlet will will talk about america in a way that american media tends not to pay that much attention to a lot of other places in in the world, and sometimes my family or friends will be like, "Why are Americans so ignorant of the rest of the world?" And I'll say, you know, a because we can, b because America itself is so flipping massive. My in laws live less close to me than you do to Portugal, right? But you don't you don't think of Portugal as being close, so you know that's part of it. But when my family will come and visit me, or I'll I'll visit them. You know, they'll they'll ask questions and say, like, why do Americans, you know, insert sweeping over generalization? Um, or like my dad will sometimes kind of explain something to me about America. I'll be like, Dad, that's the BBC talking. Like, that is not true. Or it's about 15% true. And, you know, no offense, but you don't really know what you're talking about kind of thing. So I, I think that's part of it. Like he he messaged me the other day and said, oh, you guys, all right. I, s- I saw that Hillsdale County has had an ice storm and that 80% of local people are without power. I messaged back, I said, that's true. Where on earth did you even see this? Like how far down my dad's newsfeed is he that he's seeing in central England that there's an ice storm in south central, like basically rural Michigan. The rest of the world just takes interest in America yeah. In a way that makes it both familiar, but also sort of disarmingly overfamiliar. like, oh, we know why Americans do this. And, you know, the answer is often, well, there's 350 million Americans. So what you actually mean is some of them do that. Most of them don't. And, you know, by the way, that's that isn't even exactly accurate for the ones of whom it's it's kind of accurate. Um, and I think the language thing is, is part of that for English, right, is, is that English, English people tend to feel like they just, they, they know America more than they do because the language is the same. And, you know, to an extent, that's kind of true.
0: One thing that I am fascinated to discover, although I'm in no rush to get there, is what my perception of the world and of the concept of home and of normal life is when i have been in america as long as i lived in england Mm -hmm. i moved to america when i was 26 and i'm now just 38 so i'm not that close to parity but at some point i'll be 52 unless something terrible happens to me before then i will discover what it is like to have lived in america more than I lived in Britain, and I don't know what that's going to be like because I already prioritize American news and American politics and American current affairs for obviously rational reasons. My house is here, my children are here, my wife is here, my job is here. If I read about a bank failure in France, I would say, "Oh, that's sad." And if I read one in America, I would say, uh, "Okay, where's my where's my savings?" <laughs> But there's got to be a point at which I'm going to be almost more American than British. Or is that not how it works? If you're born somewhere and your formative years are somewhere, do you stay more that? What do you think?
1: I mean, I think it does and it doesn't. Um, I'm almost at that point. I moved here right after university. I was 21. Um, I I applied for a master's program in in Atlanta and I'd been studying American history as an undergraduate in the UK. And, you know, I I don't know if 21 is honestly old enough for men in particular, boys is what I was at the time, a a bloody legally competent boy, um, you know, to make big decisions. But I just decided You know, I don't know what to do after I graduate. I really love this American history stuff. I had a great summer in America a couple of years ago when I went and did the summer camp thing that everybody does. And um, I'm going to go back to America for a bit and see how that works out. And I just I put a few items of clothing and some CDs because it was 2003 in a big yellow suitcase, got on a plane. And my mother was crying because she said, you're going to meet a woman and you're never coming back. And I was like, oh, mom, I'm just going to America for a bit. Well, here we are. I met a woman and never came back. You know, I, I just I didn't have any comprehension of the magnitude of of what I was doing. Um, I was 21 then; I'm 41 now. So, um, oh yeah, I, you're nearly there. Yeah, I'm almost I'm almost there. And and in some sense, I've been there for yonks because you know, I I, I never filed a tax return in Britain. I never had a full time job. I never owned a car. I never bought a house. I never did any grown up things. Right. Same um, so I don't actually know a lot of things about being a competent adult in Britain. I, I, I know what it was like to go to school in the 90s, to go to an undergraduate institution in the early aughts, and to just be an absolutely mindless football fan, soccer fan. Um, you know, and I, I know what beers are good. Um, you know, this, is, this is just about as much as I can tell you.
0: You asked about going home I get asked this quite a lot as well. I'm also keen to be polite when I answer it because the way I would put it is that I'm not going to go back to England. But that's not because I hate England. It's because I love America so much. I really like England. And I miss my family. And there are things about England that I miss. And, you know, we often when you sell... America which is one of the things that I like to do because I think it's a wonderful place you underplay the downsides of being an immigrant and they're real they don't outweigh the benefits but I live in a different country than my family I live in a country that is at the least 3,000 miles away from where my family lives and in my case four and a half thousand miles away from where my family lives, I will see my parents less before they die than my sister, who lives in England well. I will see my sister and her children less than I would have if I had stayed. I will see the people that I grew up with less than I would have if I had stayed. That is a sacrifice. There is a sacrifice here. Uh, life is full of trade-offs. But I just love living in America. And... You know, I'm not going to go back. And without being coy about it, I find the question at this point are you going to go home? something of a non sequitur because I am home. Right. You know, when I go on MSNBC, and look, this isn't a partisan thing. I understand that I'm sure this happens to people who go on Fox, this happens to people on the left too. I'm sure there are lots of right wing people who are just absolutely appalling to public figures who are not born in the United States. But I. Because I'm a conservative, I have got this from MSNBC and not from Fox. When I go on MSNBC, I get hundreds of emails telling me to go home. And it's extremely annoying because I'm home. And I'm home when I read them. You know, I'm actually sitting in my house when I read them. And so when someone says, oh, well, are you going to go back? Maybe you're right. Maybe without having reached the exact... Parity that i mentioned earlier maybe i have reached that point because the question jars me when it's thrown at me by msnbc viewers it's jarring in a more upsetting way when i'm asked it in a kind manner it's jarring in a confused sense what do you mean why would i go back i moved here this is where my my family so i mean jokes about guns aside I, i assume you feel broadly the same
1: yeah no I, I i definitely do i mean i'm i'm not um i'm not sure uh i would I, I i try not to say i'll never go back to england although although basically i i never will uh i mean to to live anyway yeah i i i i mean home you know home home is home right like i i, I love england Um, there are things that I miss. I miss my family. You know, I miss going to cheer for my absolutely useless soccer team. I miss sitting in the pubs and drinking the kind of pubs are
0: a huge thing, right? That's one of the things I always come up with too.
1: Right. And, And that's, and it's, it's the simple stuff. I mean, um, you know, but you know, that, that's, that's very deeply human, isn't it? Right. Taste, taste and smell, um, you know, the, 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 the foods you grew up on. Um, things of that nature. So, I, I you know, I, I'm not going to say I'll never move back to England because you just don't know what circumstances might come up that it 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 would happen. But if I do end up moving back to England, it, it would be a huge surprise. But um, you know, I, the of course I've never been on MSNBC, but um, I'm, I'm sure if I was, I would get the same kind of uh, kind of emails because, like you. I'm an immigrant and I'm also from a more or less progressive European social democracy. Therefore, I should be in the other camp, right? Like how dare you be an right. outspoken conservative telling native-born American progressives that they should adhere to the constitution. You know, which which is really and you know, this kind of speaks to to the the sort of broadly small l libertarian tendencies that you and i share you know it's it's very anti-libertarian because basically what you're saying is why don't you behave in the way that my preconceived categories tell me you should behave damn you get back in line right and and like you know you and i are uh, highly educated you know fairly relatively well paid white male etc etc not to play the the you know, the, the politics identity game because I, I tried to avoid doing that. But, you know, we we do belong to some socioeconomic categories of, of people that you get treated differently and being an immigrant for us is not as hard. I think you kind of alluded to this earlier. I, I've joked about this loads of times. Like being an Englishman in America is great. It's, it's really good. You get free passes all the time. My wife is constantly laughing and rolling her eyes and people will be like, Oh yeah, he's, he's, uh, he just, he just comes right out and says what he's thinking. Doesn't he? I, I guess, um, I guess they're all like that. And she's like, Nope, they're not. He, this is the way he behaves at home as well. And people think it's weird. That's why he came here because he can, he can say what he thinks and people will just give him a pass for it. So they are like, Oh, well he's English. They must all be rude. And, um, <laughs> You know, or they all they all joke about whatever they're thinking about. That part is true. And my wife actually loved that about England when she first started coming. She said, I just find it totally disarming that anyone might make a joke straight to your face about anything all the time, with the sole exception of if they hate you and don't want to offend you or let you know that they hate you, they'll be very polite. I think that's uh, an interesting thing that Americans find about Britons is, you know, if we insult you, it's it's because we like you and want to be your friend. And if we don't, you've done something really bad and we can't stand you.
0: So another co-opting attempt that I experience from Britons who hear my accent and assume I agree with them is the claim that American sports are terrible. So people will say... Well, I know you love America and all of that, and that's great, but you don't like their awful sports, do you? And I say, yes, I do. (laughs) I absolutely love them. Uh, In fact, I'm as invested in them as I was in English sports. That one took a while, though. I will confess. It took me a couple years to get into baseball, probably six or seven years to be obsessive about baseball. And then it took me... Nearly nine years to become an obsessive football fan. How about you?
1: Oh, that was almost instantaneous for me. In fact, a a, a year or so ago, not this past football college football season, but the year before, I actually wrote a column on uh, National Review's website about loving college football, and I moved to Atlanta for a master's degree in um, the fall of two thousand and three, and I had a I had a friend in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Who had been an exchange student uh, as as a high school junior, he'd gone to a school in my hometown, and we'd been friends at church. And I emailed him and said, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm in Atlanta, just moved here, could be here for the next couple of years. Just you know, wanted to reconnect and see how you're doing." He wrote back and said, "Oh, hey, that's great. You know, I'd love to see you. I tell you what, I'll, um, I'll I'm not too many hours away. I'll drive out and get you one weekend, and bring you back to Alabama for a football game. You'll you'll love it." And I hadn't been in the country probably six weeks and he drove out to Atlanta one Friday afternoon, picked me up, jumped in the car, drove back to Tuscaloosa where he was, he was a, I think he was a a senior at the University of Alabama living in this huge fraternity house. He was a, he was an ATO. And so it was like, you know, you grew up seeing these like college movies, right? This this sort of American college town, frat house, animal house type movies. And, you know, here my friend is, is living in this, in this huge sort of Greco-Roman revival looking frat house with like a hundred other boys. And we drive out to this town, which is not a big college town. It's about 100,000 people in Tuscaloosa, which is is not, you know, by English standards, a large city at all. And on the drive back, he tells me all about the history of Alabama football. And they were playing Oklahoma, who at that time were ranked number one. It was non-conference game. Between Alabama and Oklahoma number one OU and everyone was everyone was excited this is before Alabama got really really good again they were kind of down on their luck at the time and so he sold me this kind of narrative of these desperate fans who are just ready for their sleeping giant program to be to be back to what they imagine it to be and I grew up cheering for Derby County Football Club who you know won the league twice in the 70s but all my lifetime have been an absolute disaster so I was like okay these people want their team to be good again. And they just the universe isn't right if their team is terrible. I I get that. That's my whole life. At that point, I was still young enough to genuinely believe I would see England win a World Cup before I died, which I've I've given up on that hope at this point. So you know, we drive out and then and then there's this town of a hundred thousand people that just has this concrete spaceship in the middle of it that holds at the time eighty five thousand people. They've they've expanded it to above a hundred now. So like literally every person who lives in the town can fit inside the stadium at the same time and just make the town empty. And there's just like these RVs camped everywhere. you miles out from the stadium and there's just every curbside parking spot has an RV. And I said to my friend, like, what is this all about? And he said, oh, it's just people from all over the state just drive in for the weekend and just camp wherever they can in their RVs. And they they build their whole fall around, around the game. And um, you know, you get there on a Saturday, and everyone's out there playing cornhole and like cooking lunch from the time before the sun comes up, and friends reunions from college and family reunions from all over the state and whatnot. I just fell in love with it immediately because it was so infectious and so. I'm I'm pretty religious. I love a good ritual. I love a good ceremony. I love a good. I love pomp and pageantry and symbolism, and I grew up on the tribalism of English soccer fandom, and I get to this place, I'm like, these people are my people. They're like me. They just love this game, and they love their team, and they're absolutely insane about it, and I want to know why. So, yeah, I I fell in love with American football right away. One thing, this is the only difference – Soccer is still in some ways the most exciting game in the world because it can turn so quickly and one event will change the course of the game. But most of the time, Americans are not wrong when they say, or the the Americans who don't like soccer will say, well, soccer's boring. They're not wrong when they say that in that most of a soccer match consists of nothing whatsoever happening. American football, I think baseball as well and basketball, something's happening all the time certainly in american football like every single play there is some objective that like okay we're at first and 15 because we just got a false start if we get six yards we're we're back in good distance there's something is happening all the time and and i that that kind of appealed to me was just the, the sort of strategic nature and the and the 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 sort of constant back and forth grind of the way the game plays out but I, you know I love I love baseball too I love basketball I I don't really have a I mean, don't have skin in the game in the MLB really like you do and not like a you know big fan the way you are of the Yankees but I, I I do love a good baseball game so you know it's, it's just so deeply a culture. you know it's, it's so deeply ingrained in the culture that's one thing actually that, that never changes for me as an immigrant, probably just because I read so much American history. I I'm I'm just, didn't just move to America. I moved here because I'm interested in it. Um, you know, I, I, I tell my daughter all the time, and I, I'm, I'm always kind of half joking, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell her, she'll say, oh, daddy, I don't want to do that. It's boring. And I'll say, look, this is important. You're an American. This, this thing that we're about to do Is an intrinsic part of American childhood. You have to appreciate this. And I'm always, I'm always like sort of half jokingly trying to get her to view her own life as a sort of cultural phenomenon, which of course no eight year old is capable of doing. Um, But, uh, you know, I think that's part of it for me is just any event that's just uniquely American, even if I don't really like it for its own sake, part of me just likes the fact that it is American.
0: You just got very close to saying something that I have said to people for 10 years now when they ask me why I like America so much. And that is that there is the rational answer that it has a wonderful constitution, that it's an open society, that it's so big and so geographically and culturally diverse. And of course, that my family, my close family, my own family lives here. But then there's that pre-rational or maybe irrational part which you can't describe. It's like being asked, why do you like Patsy Cline? Or why do you like Blue Skies? I like many things in this country purely because they are American, exactly as you just said. Yep. If you show me a picture of a mountain... And you tell me that the mountain is American as opposed to, say, Canadian or Australian or Greek. I will like the mountain more that is American just because it's American. I cannot summon any reasonable or comprehensible argument as to why that makes sense or why that should be the case. But it is. And funnily enough, it always has been the case. Ever since I was a little kid, I had this fascination with America that manifested itself in that way. If a movie was set in America, even if its being set in America was not especially germane to anything, I liked it more. Right? I was more interested in it, more fascinated by it, more seduced by it. I think that's fascinating that you say that as well. Because I always thought I was a bit weird for
1: that. Well, you probably are, but I'm just weird in the exact same way. But, you know, sometimes I answer when people say, why do you love America? Like, sometimes I I sort of semi-facetiously answer it by saying, well, because there are no cats in America. And the streets are paved with cheese, Right. Um, you know, which is a reference to uh, American Tale, right? The the uh, the the nineties cartoon movie of Five Old Uh But you know, I've I've I referenced that when I'm teaching the Gilded Age, you know, the late nineteenth century, and I talk about immigration, and I say, look, yes, it's about a fictitious cartoon mouse, but it's actually a pretty accurate depiction of the immigrant experience to. At least the great northeastern cities of the late nineteenth century, as you're going to see. But I, I, I associate with that in a very genuine way because, like you know, that song, um, you know, there are there are no cats in America and the streets are paved with cheese. So put your mind at ease. The characters in the movie, I'm sure you've seen it and watched it with yeah. with your kids, but they sing it on the boat, right? And like every verse is is a sad verse in kind of minor key. Maybe it's in minor key. You're the musician, but you know, it, it's like sad music and they're singing about I mean it's actually kind of serious, isn't it? Because it's that they're mice who've been persecuted by by cats, but the cats are Cossacks and the mice are Jews, right? So it's referencing anti-Jewish pogroms in The Vale of Settlement in the eighteen eighties, which is quite serious subject matter. And they all sing these songs about how they've been persecuted. And then the chorus goes into you know major key happy music and they all say, but there are no cats in America and the streets are paved with cheese. And so when people ask me, like, why do you love America? I'm like, because there's no cats and the streets are paved with cheese. Like, it, it's, it's a cultural shorthand for people come here and believe they can do anything. And they believe that because they kind of can. Yes, There's enough people that you can point to and say, well, look, that guy did that. If he can do that, what is, what's his name? What's his first name? Paul. Is it Paul Hill? The philosophy professor up there in Chicago who um wrote maybe is up maybe he's up in up, up in Wisconsin somewhere, but he wrote a love letter to America was his response to Taneshi Coates' Between the The World and Me. He he wrote this book, Love Letter to America, and he, he, he was from Jamaica moved to the greater Atlanta area in like the late 80s or something like that and kind of writes about he's he's gay and so he he said look I, I grew up as a sort of closeted homosexual in Jamaica in the 1980s and moved to America and we, we ended up settling in Stone Mountain Georgia where all of my white friends that I made said why do you live in Stone Mountain that's the home of the clan which is I don't know that that was ever true but it was sort of an urban myth in Georgia in the in the late latter part of last century, that you know, there's there's clan out there in Stone Mountain, which he he said, listen, all I found in Stone Mountain was thousands of other people who've moved from Jamaica and were making a living mowing lawns, and all they told me was, it's amazing in America when you bill people for mowing their lawn, they pay you. That's what America was to me, a place where I could come and achieve whatever. And what's the name, the lieutenant governor of of Virginia, who um, who ran with. Winston Sears. Yeah, I mean, she like her acceptance speech when they won, you know, I don't follow partisan races very closely, so I'm not great with names and this kind of thing, but I, I remember seeing her acceptance speech. I think I saw it on YouTube the next day. And Winston Sears, you know, just, just stands up and gives that great message that, look, my dad came here with a $5 bill in his pocket from the West Indies in the 1960s in the, in the height of the civil rights movement and achieved all the things that he achieved. And it's only possible here. And if you tell me that America is a racist country, and I'm not saying that this racism never exists or that there aren't exceptions or that it isn't harder if you're born black in America than than if you're born white on average. That that tends to be true. We could debate the reasons for that. But um that that message, you know, is 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 powerful. And um, you know, you and I as English immigrants to America it's not the same thing as as paying a coyote to get you across the border from Guatemala and starting with with no paperwork. But there's a reason why people are trying to do that. And, and broadly speaking, it not only works out really well, but it, it works out in a way that it wouldn't anywhere else in the world. That's still true. I still believe that. You know, and that's one of the reasons why I call myself an immigrant and not an expat, and I, like, I'm not claiming that I had it hard at all. I, I didn't. My immigrant experience is not the same thing as someone who had to sneak across the southern border illegally. But I still associate with them very powerfully. Like I, I, I know what it's like to be a, a penniless 21-year-old graduate student with all of his worldly goods in a single suitcase who just wants to go to America because he doesn't know where it's going to take him, but he thinks it's going to be pretty darn good. There's a kinship between me and anyone else in, in, in this country who feels that way.
0: Yeah, well, it's partly because it is true. I find it absolutely infuriating to hear from people on left and right, frankly, at the moment, that the American dream is a lie. It's not. And it's not just me. Just talk to anyone around who came from somewhere else or even who didn't come from somewhere else ask them about their life and compare notes with people in other countries the opportunities here are extraordinary the lack of gates are extraordinary i just found this here people care a lot less about where you're from and it's one reason I get so cross about the credentialism that I think we're developing with our fetishization of college because it threatens the openness of American society. If every single person is supposed to obtain the same piece of paper, then you, you don't have uh, a culture that is as open as this one. Right. But it's still there. It's still there. And it's not just economic, although that is an important part of it. The ability for self-actualization, which sounds very pretentious, and in extreme cases can, of course, be a problem. You don't want to encourage Charles Manson to self-actualize. But you mentioned being in Texas and wearing a Stetson, and nobody said to you, oh, wow, look at you, foreign poser. I don't wear a Stetson, but I am into what would be perceived as very american things
1: you drive around town in a tricked out golf cart i mean that is the, that is the north florida equivalent of wearing a stetson
0: <laughs> well i like nascar it's not my favorite sport by any stretch of the imagination but i go to the daytona 500 every year it's 90 miles away and i have a daytona 500 hat and no one has ever said to me wow it's a bit weird that you have a Daytona 500 hat with that accent. In fact, the opposite is true. Big racing fans, fans of racing to a degree that I'm not, will say to me, oh, you like racing? And they want to talk about it. And in fact, the fact that I'm from another place makes it even more exciting that I latched onto it and I go every year because I didn't grow up in Daytona and I didn't grow up with a dad who was into NASCAR or what you will. I think that's, that's an amazing cultural magnet that people rightly are attracted to
1: yeah i I don't know this might be a, a awkward or arbitrary transition here but thinking about our home country you know i guess we've been talking about the thing that broadly speaking is infectious and 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 beautiful about americans right their optimism and their willingness to Cheer for a success story, where that you know I think I think Britons have this this bad tendency to cheer against success stories, you know that that they want to tear down uh, the 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 stalk of corn that has grown above the others. The thing that stuck out to me more and more, and i don 't know whether this is just my instinct, this is just kind of because i'm is it just that I was born with a personality that predisposed me towards civil libertarianism i i, I don 't know but the more I'm away from England, the more apparent is to me and the more oppressive it seems the English collective propensity towards sheep like um, conformity. Right. And the, the sort of crowd mentality of, of going along with the rules and savaging anyone who doesn't. Right. I think the English have a collective loathing of the nonconformist. Even if the rules change, and they do, but once they change, everyone agrees that they've, that they've changed, right? Like, if you were at a polite dinner party in England and you just said, talking point, I think we should privatize the NHS, discuss. Like, people would choke on their food, right? <laughs> like, what? why is that? Uh, uh, do, you, do you agree or am I just being a curmudgeonly git?
0: No, I think you're right. And, look, I love my friends, but one of the rites of passage through which i must go each and every time i go to the pub with them back in england if i'm over for christmas or visiting for the summer or what you will is the you don't really believe that do you conversation now in some circumstances i actually understand the fascination i understand for example the fascination with the Second Amendment, very unusual for the English. I understand to some extent the cultural unfamiliarity with private health care, although what you're describing is something different. I even understand the interest in the dynamic economy that the United States has and the rough edges and individual sob stories that that can produce but the one that always gets me and that i think i really don't think this should be so alien to you or amusing to you is the first amendment this is brought up as if it's a flaw as if it is self-evidently crazy as if the Americans have obviously got it wrong with the degree to which they decline to prosecute people for speaking or for exercising their conscience rights or for assembling or protesting or complaining. Now, I understand that America really is an outlier. It's one of the things I like the most about the United States. America is the only country in the world in which you can insert all manner of Uh, Ends to that sentence. But I find it really strange that the country of John Stuart Mill, that the country that inspired so many of the classical liberal traditions that were set in aspic in America, is so baffled by its modern incarnation. Right. And it's exactly what you're talking about. It is based upon a conception that the scope for dissent that the American legal structure and culture creates is a problem because it gets in the way of unity and comedy, that it provides too many opportunities for those who disagree, and that this is a problem, that it permits people to say things that are self-evidently untrue or offensive, which, of course, it does. The first step that anyone who wishes to be a small-l liberal must take is to distinguish between what they like and what is the best setup for a free society. And I find that a lot of British people either can't or are unwilling to to do that. And so they will say, but under the American system, somebody can go outside in their yard and they can burn a Quran. Yeah. But that's a terrible thing to do. Well, actually, yeah, I think it's not a great thing to do. I wouldn't do it. You know, this is one of the world's great religions. I have no desire to willfully upset people in that way. But that's not really the point, is it? The point is that you cannot sit in the pub and decide where the lines are. You can't ask a transient majority to determine what is an acceptable and unacceptable thing to say. And I just find that this idea is treated as if it is the height of eccentricity. (laughs) Right. I'm baffled by this
1: yeah, I mean and it really just kind of comes down to what exactly is it that you think is most dangerous like what what are you, what are you most afraid of uh, and and you know i've I've for years been trying to figure this out like why why are the English broadly speaking so afraid of this kind of disruptiveness i i, I I don't know that this explains it but I the thing that I come back to most often is maybe it's something to do with population density. When I explain to American friends, look, England is the size of the state of Georgia and the population is I mean what even is it at this point? North of 50 million, approaching 60. Um yeah. and then 90% of them live in about 20% of the land area. So you you've got about, you know, 50 odd million people squeezed into an urban corridor that runs along the M4 from London to Bristol and up the the M1 from you know London to Leeds via my hometown of Nottingham um and then you know across the Pennines to Manchester and basically you've got more than the you've got the population of California like squeezed into an amount of land that's that's basically the commute from one end of Connecticut down to New York City, right? Like that's – there's just a lot of people squeezed into not a lot of space and maybe the, there's this sort of unconscious fear that if we allow individualistic disorder, chaos will break out. But I, I'm i not sure that that's accurate. And even if it is the reason, I'm not sure that it's really the, the right idea.
0: No, well, there's also – There's a paradox there as well, I think. You mentioned having heard straight off the bat, but never quite knowing what it meant until you went to a baseball game. The odd thing about England is that the cultural signposts that marked out free speech are still there. But the intellectual underpinnings and collective desire is not right it's gone so you will hear people say in england all the time well it's a free country right you will hear people talk about the upturned box on hyde park corner you will hear people say it's just his opinion and then 10 minutes later you'll hear the same people say oh sure we should put people in prison if they say something horrendous on twitter right. <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean i you know to to, to- Point to something
1: quite serious that I've been consuming here lately. I've, I've been I've been listening in a, in a sort of macabre wrapped way to um, the Witch of Charles J K Rowling, which is the podcast mini series that's um, that's been coming out from the Free Press Barry Weiss's organization. You know, it's just all about the fallout from these tweets that she made. It's fascinating, but she in in the the first of these tweets that got her in trouble. She hashtagged it, this is not a drill, which was a reference to a blog post made by Kathleen Stock, who was at the time a a philosophy professor at, I think, the University of Sussex maybe, but a British university somewhere, somewhere down south, responding to this employment tribunal ruling in the case of What was her name? Maya Forstater, who was a research assistant at a different British university and who made some public social media posts about women's rights and the, the trans movement. And this is not to get us into a conversation about transgender rights or transgender people or whatever, but about the speech issues that surround it. I'll just read you the first two paragraphs of this b- blog post that Kathleen Stock, which this shouldn't matter by the way, but for the record, Kathleen Stock is a lesbian and a leftist, but she's also, you know, a, a, a feminist, which J.K. Rowling too is in case you hadn't noticed or had forgotten amid recent furore, very progressive. And somehow, you know, these like Kathleen Stock was was run out of her job, made it untenable. But she wrote this. This is um, this is December 2019. I'm a professor of philosophy employed at a British university in the Department of Philosophy. Today, a UK employment tribunal judge ruled that the belief that biological sex is immutable and it is impossible to change one's sex is quote incompatible with human dignity and the fundamental rights of others. He writes, quote, I do not accept the claimant's contention that the Gender Recognition Act produces a mere legal fiction. It provides a right, based on the assessment of the various interrelated conventional rights, for a person to transition in certain circumstances and thereafter be treated for all the purposes or for all purposes as being of the sex to which they've transitioned. That's the end of the quote. Please note, this is back to Kathleen Stock, please note, all purposes, The judge has therefore apparently ruled that there are no contexts whatsoever in which it may be permissibly denied that a person with a gender recognition certificate is the sex that they say they are. He also says in his ruling that there is significant scientific evidence that one's biological sex can be changed, erroneously citing intersex people as of relevance to the facts of social transition. This judge has concluded that nothing illegal happened when Maya Forstater lost employment at the Center for Global Development for stating these beliefs. This judge is now out there to influence those who follow, and a message is sent to UK employees. Don't express the view that people can't change sex. Your job will not be protected if you do. So I guess, like, just going back to that conversation that you referenced, you know, that your rite of passage with your friends in the pub, you can't really believe that dot, dot, dot. What is it that you're more afraid of? Are you more afraid of a state... That can take the overweening might and majesty of the law, that can put you in jail and and ruin your life, put you beyond appeal or redress, saying, hey, you don't even have the legal right away from your job. Not at work, not getting up in the face of a fellow employee who is transgender and saying, hey, you're you're not a woman, you're faking it. No one's buying it, mate. Get the dress off. Just tweeting or putting on Facebook, which I generally don't think is a good idea, you can't just say in public, I believe a thing that almost everyone who's ever lived in the entire history of mankind thought, and most of the people who are alive right now still think, the law just says, okay, that's no longer reasonable to think. You can get fired. You can get the sack at your job, even though you didn't say this at work and it has nothing whatsoever to do with your job. I'm not trying to start a conversation about transgenderism here, I'm I'm talking about the speech rights around the question. To me, I'm I'm just much more afraid of a state that might put me in jail or allow me to be fired by a, a pack mentality for having an opinion that is reasonable. Then I am worried that you, my neighbour, is gonna use the right of free speech to say something stupid or obnoxious, because you probably are, because that's what people are like. I can argue with you. How am I gonna argue with the British Crown when they come to drag me off to jail because I think that a man is a man and a woman is a woman? You know? Like that that it terrifies the heck out of me. And I can't really understand people who it doesn't terrify. Like I can understand why you're nervous about people owning guns. I disagree with you, but I get it. I really don't understand why a a person who says this is a free country would not come down on a a hardcore position when it comes to speech rights.
0: Well, on that bombshell, as Alan Partridge used to say, on, uh, on that bombshell, we've run out of time. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Sam. It was a pleasure.
1: Yes, and with thy spirit.